0: Hi, everyone. This is Terry Brooks, and I have just enjoyed a good 45 minutes on the great, big, beautiful podcast. Have you ever been to Disneyland? Affirmative. That was definitely an e-ticket. I can't believe all the new gadgets they've got now. For a while, we didn't even have a house phone, not to
1: mention laser discs, high-def TV.
2: Are listening to the Great Big Beautiful Podcast. This week on the show. I got a phone call from Mary Kirchhoff, the editor, and she said I have to go after I won the audition, she said I have to go I have to go sell this book to our marketing team. We need a sidekick for Wolfgar. And I told her I'd do it in a week, you know, I'd get back to her next week, and she said, no, I got to go to this meeting. And I said, all right, I'll go take lunch. I was working full-time in finance then. And she said, you don't understand, I'm outside the door of a meeting that I'm late for, and I need a sidekick for Wolfgar And off the top of my head, I, I said, a dark elf. And, and there's a long pause, and she said, a drow? And I said, yeah, a drow. And then the wheel started turning, and it just came from there. And I just said, yeah, a drow ranger, that'll be cool. And she said, a drow ranger, you know? I'm like, yeah, and she said, I said, yeah, that's never been done before. And she goes, there's probably a reason for that, Bob. And I say, <laughs>
1: Welcome to another episode of The Great Big Beautiful Podcast. You can find us online at www. Do I even need to say that anymore? I feel like an idiot saying that every week. You can find us online at thegbbpodcast.com. You can find us on all the socials. Uh, Twitter primarily, but also Facebook, YouTube, those kind of places at The GBB Podcast. I am Jamie Green. You can find me at The RoarBots and joining me this week,
0: Samantha Fisher. Welcome back. Thank you. Thank you.
1: It is always a pleasure to have you here. Um, How have things been going for you recently now that the summer is sort of winding down? Did you get a chance to go anywhere this summer? No,
0: I did not um, do anything really exciting this summer, but... Generally, that's how I like it. Um, yeah. I much prefer to travel and do stuff in like fall and spring. I don't do well in heat. So <laughs> um, especially outdoor stuff, I just melt and I have no energy whatsoever.
1: I think that's why this year we decided to head north. So, you know, we also wanted to escape the heat. It's been a super humid, very rainy summer here in D.C. Mm-hmm. And so we went north where it was a little bit cooler. Not as cool as I expected it to be. We went really far north. We went all the way up to Newfoundland. And uh, we were kind of expecting it to be much colder than it was, even though it was August. But it was cool, but it wasn't cold. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, I highly recommend that escaping the heat during the summer and going someplace cool.
0: Yeah, I, I saw some of your pictures and that looks like a very fun trip. So
1: it, it was fun. It, it was a long drive, but it was a, it was a fun trip. <laughs> um, so anyway, uh, we, we had R.A. Salvatore this week. And if any of my um, lovely, lovely co-hosts are my go to for fantasy, it would be you, Sam.
0: It is kind of my jam.
1: It is your jam. We had you. We had you. You were here for uh, for Terry Brooks, and I know I'm blanking on a couple others, but whenever we have uh, a guest who is steeped in fantasy, it seems like you are also hereabouts to be found. So give me, give me a, a quick, you are, I'm going to be straightforward right here. Sam is far more in touch with his works, Salvatore's books and his works than I am. I I mean I know who he is I know his books I know the worlds that he writes in but Sam has read far more of his books than I have. So I'm going to turn it over to you and you can give everybody a quick brief down-and-dirty explanation of who is Ra Salvatore and
0: what does he write. Well, um for the past 30 years he's pretty much been known for the Drizzt books. Um and Drizzt was a character he created in the Forgotten Realms world. Um who is a drow. So he's a dark elf. Um, and I'm trying to remember, uh, of course there's been so many of the books. I'm never going to remember every title and the date they came out, but, um, I was a little later to reading his stuff. Um, I was always one of those folks who I came across books by happenstance. Um, There wasn't a lot of money to spend on books when I was younger, so it would be things I found at yard sales, rummage sales, um, or somebody gave me books, you know, that sort of thing. And it's not like my, you know, Podanka high school (laughs) school library had these books in it, right? (laughs) It was a tiny library.
1: I feel like most high school libraries probably don't have, like, a a particularly impressive fantasy section, though.
0: That needs to be corrected. Uh, Very (laughs) true. I um I was in college it was a couple years into college and um I had uh started not only partaking of the libraries you know cuz I went to Ohio state tons of libraries right mm-hmm. um but right. also borrowing from people in the dorms and then later people you know that I just hung out with when you know eventually everybody moves off campus when they become upperclassmen and I started borrowing a lot of books. That's how I got into reading the star Wars novelizations and, and, um, mm-hmm. other stories and, um, uh, the name, uh, Tracy Hickman. And, uh, all I can remember is Tasselhoff Burfoot's name, but that series of books, um, was kind of my introduction into this type of fantasy where it's kind of set in the forgotten realms or D and D, you know, mm-hmm. worlds. um, and then I borrowed the very first Drizzt book in the series from a guy I knew from college and loved it. Um, and I read, gosh, I think probably the first like 15 or so, like back to back. Wow. Um, so Now,
1: were you a Dungeons and Dragons player at the time?
0: Not then. I not didn't then. actually play d d until I was in my 30s.
1: So these books were sort of your introduction to the world and those characters?
0: Yeah, like I, I knew what D D was. Mm-hmm. I had never played it; had just never had an opportunity to play it. Um, by the time I got to college, where people were doing those sorts of things, um, PC gaming had become a thing, and which is also one of my things. <laughs> so, <laughs> I kind of went down that rabbit hole for a while. Um, and so, the books were kind of what I, I was reading these fiction books set in those realms, and. Thinking to myself, this is really freaking cool. So these people are writing entire novels, creating entire you know worlds out of a game.
1: Mm-hmm. Like
0: I, I got to find out more about this game. So um, the book,
1: the books made you want to investigate the game. Is that yes. fair? It's yep. Okay. It's interesting because when you when 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 I think of books like this that are based on games to a certain extent, you know, like there's a lot of novelizations of video games, even now, like there's halo books, there's books based on, um, 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 you know, dungeons and dragons, obviously, but, uh, there's star Wars, you know, the expanded universe. It mm-hmm. seems like a lot of these quote unquote, expanded universe books would primarily attract fans of that franchise. Like, if I've never played Halo, if I've never played D anD I don't know that I'm going to run out and pick up a, like a novelization that expands that world and those characters. Mm-hmm. Um, but I guess it does happen that way. In, in reverse, it does happen where people will just pick up a book, read it, and be like, "Wow, this is really awesome!" Now I need to go find out what this, you know the source material. Find out what that's all about.
0: Yeah, and you know, I've always been ass backwards pardon no. my language but <laughs> i do almost always come about um things that i become passionate about like in almost the reverse order um a lot of times like like you've probably picked on up on this somewhat in the different conversations we've had with different authors a lot of of who I am today is because of the books I read. Um, mm-hmm. when I was younger, that was it for entertainment. Um, no TV, not a lot of games. I mean, we had like checkers and chess and cards. Mm-hmm. That was it until I was old enough and financially sound enough to, to dabble in those areas myself. Um, there was no computer at home. I, I just, there was nothing there. Um, so books were my entire world. Um. So in in that respect I don't think it's surprising that I came across the books before the game. Sure. Um in fact it's probably a miracle that I even knew what D&D was uh, because <laughs> n- none of the folks I hung out with played it or talked about it. I honestly couldn't tell you how I became aware of it.
1: Yeah, it's that's one of those things though. It's it's even if you don't play it, you know what it is or you have a passing understanding of what it is, you know. Mm-hmm. It's like Star Wars or Star Trek or or I'm trying to think of something else that might be like that, but it's it's so big, you know. And it's been around for so such a long time. Magic is probably another thing. Even if you never played a game of magic, you know what it is. You know, you've mm-hmm. heard of it. You know, you might not know the rules. You probably don't know the rules, but you know it's this game that people play with cards. You know, and it's set in this fantasy world with amazing art. Mm-hmm. Um, so it, it doesn't surprise me that even if you didn't have access to the games and the video games or that much television, you know, it's been referenced so many times and in so many places it's permeated the culture. So it, it, it certainly doesn't surprise me that you knew what it was even though you had never been exposed to it. I am, I've said this before, I'm not a and player. Um, R.A. Salvatore's newest book, Timeless. It, it, it is about drifts to a certain extent, um, it kind of goes back. It's a quote unquote, a prequel, I guess you could say it, it takes place earlier in the timeline of, of these books. But one thing that I noticed, and I did mention it in our talk to him, is that when you open it up, you know, there's always that front matter and it's like other books by this author and the page for him obviously doesn't list all of his books because he's written just so many books, but it's other books in this series. Like, and I, and I don't know exactly how it was, but whether it's other just addressed books or just. His book set in the Forgotten Realms, but it's so many books. And it kind of was a little bit overwhelming to me because if I had never read any of these other books and I didn't know who this character was, I look at that and I think, wait a minute, I need to read 30 other books in order to read and understand this one? Like, really? <laughs>
0: Yeah and and I think he does uh, you know a lot of his books were done as you know tr- trilogies right as most yeah. fantasy um books are so you do an arc and you do three of them um and a lot of his were that way I think there was one that was four books if i remember correctly but again I, when i'm mentioning college that was 20 <laughs> <laughs> okay, so so it's been a while and um, this
1: this book timeless we should say is the first of a new trilogy so you're is. right
0: yes and um <laughs> You know, like this kind of funny, though, because we had the same type of conversation with Terry Brooks about the Shannara or Shannara Mm -hmm. series as Mm -hmm. he pronounces it, though he doesn't really care that we call it Shannara. (laughs) It just flows easier. Um, But he said the same thing, like. He's done moving the timeline forward, right? Like he's closed to the timeline, yeah. but there are infinite number of stories that could be told all along that existing timeline that he started back in the seventies. Right. So, and I, I think Salvatore has actually written more novels. At least this is my assumption. Just thinking quickly off the top of my head. Mm-hmm. He's written more in the forgotten realms, the Drizzt books than Terry Brooks has written shanara books yeah i I think
1: you're right yeah i think you're right
0: um and he's written for a smaller amount of time so he's definitely more prolific but Mm -hmm. it's kind of interesting that as time moves on and and you can tell when authors are sort of done with their story are their storylines because like uh terry brooks has has written a couple of different types of books before he came back and did you know that that next trilogy that he started uh recently Mm-hmm. Um, that's sort of a, an offshoot of the original timeline, and then Salvatore's kind of doing the same thing. Like he never technically said he was done moving it forward, but instead of moving it forward, he was like, you know, what? I'm just going to go back. I want to tell this story. I want to let people know, you know, how Drizzt's father came to be where he was at, and how he got to be at the point where, you know, where he became part of of that world. And um, it's interesting that the, that two of the major players in fantasy writing would do mm-hmm. that at roughly the same time.
1: Yeah, mm-hmm. it is. I mean, it's, I, I, and it's there. I wish I could say this with more authority, but it seems like, like you were just saying their careers have run kind of parallel in the universes that they're writing about. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, eventually I guess everybody goes back to prequels, you know, George Lucas did it. Tolkien did it, you know, like everybody tells the story they want to tell. And then eventually they close out that story and they think, well, I could keep going, but that's probably not as interesting. You know what? There's so much story to tell about how we got to that beginning that I'm just going to go back and I'm going to fill in some of those cracks. And um, it, it seems like that is a common road that authors and creators will take if they spend enough time in that world. And Terry Brooks and Bob Salvatore have certainly spent enough time in their respective worlds. Mm-hmm. Um, so this conversation, we do talk a lot about Timeless, the new book, the new um, first of a new trilogy that's going to be coming out. We talk about his career. We talk about writing for the forgotten realms. We talk about that world. We talk about Drist. Uh He says Dritz. We say Driz. Again, it doesn't really matter. He doesn't seem to care. Um, we talked a little bit about the star wars books that he wrote uh he he wrote the novelization for attack of the clones he wrote uh vector prime which uh, i i don't know if it's a spoiler alert because it's not canon but anyway he killed chewbacca so we talk a little bit about that and how that came about um and we oh you guys geeked out about everquest a bit i forgot about that
0: Oh, yeah, we did. We went down a rabbit hole towards the end there. <laughs> so, um, yes, but uh, that was my first um, uh, MMO RPG. So the massively multiplayer online uh, right. RPG. Um, so, see, I actually did that before I ever actually played D&D, which, again, completely backwards. Um, but that was my first one. And oh, man, did I sink a lot of hours into that game. <laughs> <laughs> and still to this day, out of all of I've played so many video games, I've played so many hard video games. That is the most difficult game I have ever played. Really? Um, oh, yeah. It was just you would try something, you would fail, you would try it again, get a little further, fail <laughs>
1: like,
0: yeah. just over and over again.
1: That was a game. My brother-in-law played that game and he is not a gamer. Like, especially now he's just, he doesn't, I don't think he plays anything, but when he and my sister were first dating, like that was what he did. Like he had his office in his apartment or whatever, and he would just sit there and he played EverQuest. And um, at the time I didn't even really know what it was. I was like, is is that kind of like a Final Fantasy game? Like, what's going on? Uh, and I, I figured it out. And, but he, I don't know. I don't think that he still plays. Um, and I, and I don't know when he stopped playing, but I just remember that about him when, like, when I first met him, that EverQuest was his jam too.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I played that for quite a while and I played that one with, uh, real life friends. Like that's how I got into it.
1: What? Um, real life friends.
0: I know. Yeah. It's so ancient. So, <laughs> so last century. Um, but yes, I actually, uh, you know, the whole concept of MMOs, you, 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 not only do you group up to do things because a lot of stuff requires more than just yourself. That's why it's multiplayer. Um, so, but we would also, we were all also in the same guild and stuff like that. So that's huge groups. Then you do things called raids. And, and it was very, I think, very helpful for me to have people that I knew. Um, and, you know, like, and also my, my husband at the time, he played as well. And so our desks were in the same room. Uh-huh. So we could actually talk to each other just like just talk um you know and do logistics and that sort of stuff for things which was very helpful
1: fun anyway we're gonna we're gonna shut up now we're gonna jump into our conversation with our a salvatore uh, thank you again for coming back week after week, listening to these conversations. Uh, we really do hope that you enjoy them. If there's somebody specific that you want to hear on the show, if there's some type of person that you would like to hear on the show that maybe we haven't had before, do let me know. You can reach out to me on Twitter at the Robots, TheRoarBots, T-H-E-R-O-A-R-B-O-T-S. Uh, you can also find me on um, uh, oh yeah, Facebook and Instagram. I've, I'm there far less, though. Twitter is your best chance and Sam remind us again where the good people can find you
0: at Samantha Fisher on Twitter
1: and uh, we will see you guys next week with another great conversation take care and here is our conversation with R.A. Salvatore Bob thank you so much for taking the time to talk It's it's a thrill to have you so thanks for swinging by my
2: pleasure, absolutely.
1: Um, so we're going to talk primarily, I guess, here at the top, we're going to talk about the newest book, but you have been playing in this Forgotten Realms sandbox uh, probably, correct me if I'm wrong, but for a lot longer and with a lot more words than anything else in your career. Uh, so, What makes this world so appealing, so compelling to you as a storyteller that you just keep returning to it?
2: That's a couple of things first it's the classic high fantasy you know high magic uh fantasy world so it's it's got all the ingredients you need to tell your stories and it's big enough that i can stay out of the way of everybody else who's working in the world <laughs> so you know it, it's a it's a ready-made playground and, and i came in and i actually did the second book in the realms doug niles did the first one i did this very second novel there's a couple hundred of them now i believe and uh, But I've been able to stay away from the other authors, so we're not stepping on each other's toes. I find that very <laughs> appealing.
0: <laughs> yeah, sounds like an occupational hazard when you're sharing, sharing a world. Um, so you've written dozens of books now um, about Drist in particular. Uh, do you ever get kind of tired of, of his character, or do you feel like you run out of things to say, or does it just seem like you know this bottomless well to pull from?
2: Well, the way I look at it is, uh, you know, I've been doing it for 30 years, 31 years. I've been writing that character and my perspective on the world changes. And so this is, so no, I'm not, I don't grow tired of it because it's more like writing a new season for a television show Hmm. than a new Hmm. novel is the way I look at it. And I've written these books more like the Sherlock Holmes series or, um, Or the James Bond series, as opposed to, you know, A Song of Ice and Fire or Wheel of Time, where everything keeps building upon the book before it. You couldn't pick up the fifth book in this Wheel of Time and know what the heck was going on, right? But you can with these books, because they're episodic. They're adventures. Mm -hmm. So, as far as the character goes, he's changed quite a bit over the 30 years, and he continues to change. And he also has a very, very strong supporting cast. Of characters at this point both good guys and bad guys mm-hmm. so no i don't i don't get bored with it and when i have the urge to do something different creatively i've got just as many books outside the realms as inside the realms so yeah. right I, I find plenty of places to go crazy
0: <laughs> yeah there's a, there's a lot of places just within you know in the first set of books right um he travels a bit and you, you get to kind of experience him experiencing this whole new world. Um, yeah. And that's, that was one of the things that drew me to the storyline was, was um, it was almost like he was a kid, you know, like uh, uh, stepping out on his first adventure. So I guess in a lot of ways he was.
2: Yeah. You know, when people write to me and say, you know, you have any advice, I tell them to fall in love with the character and see the world through his or her eyes. and, it's more fun that way as a writer yeah and i think yeah. for the readers
1: you, you mentioned something there like how these these books are episodic you know i cracked open timeless when i opened opened it up for the first time and you know in the front matter there there's this whole list of related books you know set in the same world or also starring the same characters and it's a little bit daunting to be honest it's a little overwhelming to see dozens and dozens of books that have come before um are you concerned about that? Like, do you feel that sometimes, you know, that depth of history might put off new new readers who might feel like, oh, I can't just jump in at this point. I, I have to read 40 books to know what's
2: going on. Um, well, you don't have to read the other books to know what's going on if I'm doing it right. Yeah. But am I concerned about it? Well, no, because there's nothing I can do about it. <laughs> I'm not going to erase the old books, and they're still all doing really well, and people are buying them and enjoying them, and that's all good. Yeah. Uh, i give you a perfect example. When the Thousand Orcs came out, which was probably, oh boy, I don't know, 2004, two, somewhere in that area, it had the word orc in it. Mm. And this was right around the time the Fellowship of the Ring had come out. So Tolkien had all of a sudden exploded back onto the scene with the Peter Jackson movies. So between the word orc in the title, which was coincidental, but a really fortunate one for me, (laughs) and the amazing artwork that Todd Lockwood did, I picked up tens of thousands of new readers with that book. Wow. And hopefully if people like it, they go back and read the other books. Yeah. Or maybe that's where they jump on and just stand on. Maybe they just read the book, enjoy it, and then go read other things. However it works is fine with me. Yeah. I mean. It's completely up to the reader to do what they want. But as far as yeah, I, I do think that a lot of people will shy from the picking up their first Dritz book now when they look at this list of other books behind it. I think that's, you know, inevitable. It, it it's it, it's probably true of the expanded universe and Star Wars as sure. well. Sure,
1: sure. Um, yeah, it's hard it's hard to know where to start. I mean, so if someone were to come to you and say, I mean, you could say, well, any book or any trilogy or any series is a great place to start. But is there one place that would be better if you want to explore this world?
2: Well, I would say absolutely Homeland or the Crystal Shard. Crystal Shard was the first one that came out, Homeland was the first one. It's chronologically the earliest book in the series, so it's The Legend of the Drits book one. That would be the best place to start. I, I love both those books, and they'll give you a good example of what the ride you're in for as you go through the books. Uh, but there are others. I think uh, The Companions would be a good place to start. I think Gauntle Grimm would be a good place to start. I think Timeless would be a very good place to start. In fact, I specifically wrote Timeless As uh, a jumping on point for for new readers, Hmm.
1: was that your own like was that your own thinking like because of what we're talking about like you've written so many dozens of books that you want to have a good jumping on place or did the publisher come to you and say we want to have a good jumping on place or where did that come from
2: Yeah, that was mine. I had three things in mind when I was writing Timeless. One was. We all thought the books were over a couple of years ago when Hero came out because Wizards of the Coast wasn't doing any more books. So everyone thought that that was it, including me. Mm -hmm. And after we all got together and said, hey, let's do more books and HarperCollins got involved and between, you know, my people and HarperCollins and Wizards of the Coast, it took about a half a year, a little more than half a year to iron out all the details of how this would work and everybody would be happy with it. And we got that done, so now we're coming back. So at that point, I figured I had three things to do. I had to, I had to write a book for people to see what happened at the end of Hero because it was the ending of the series, I thought, but it had a pretty dramatic and surprising ending in one regard, which I won't give away here. So I had to do that. I also had been telling my readers for years that I wanted to write a book about Zack and and Jarl Axel way back in time before Dritz was born, and they all, and people wanted it, but I couldn't do that with Wizards because they, were, they kept moving forward with the storyline and wanted me to move forward with them. You know, the, Their book line was moving forward to produce the new storylines they right. were telling. Uh, so I wanted, to, I wanted to accomplish that. And then for people who had fallen behind because there was a flurry of Dritz books at the end there, for people who had fallen behind or people who hadn't read before, I wanted them to be able to see the world anew through new eyes. So the three things were to give the people who wanted the, the old story about the other two characters, Zach and Fan and Charles Axel, give them that finally. To continue hero for the people who had read all the way through and to give a jumping on point for new readers or people who had fallen behind and then just kind of dropped it when they heard that the book line was over. Yeah. So that was a conscious decision on my part to do it this way. Yeah.
0: So, um, I mean, you've you've referred a couple of times just in this conversation, but also in other things that I've read recently, that that you don't think his story is really over. That it did not end for you, you know, when you wrote um, that that last book. Um, so that's why we've got timeless now. But um, do you have any sort of idea where we might? be taken next uh is it going to be going back and telling some more like uh, side quests or you know something to that effect or are you going to try to take the timeline forward in some way or do you have an idea
2: well for the next two books that are planned i'm finishing up one now actually uh we'll do the same i'll do the same format i'm going to go back in time for two of the four sections and continue the story there and then tie it all together in the third book uh, Mm -hmm. and go forward with the other two sections of each book in the present day realms. So it'll follow this. I will be following this um, design and and kind of uh, structure for the next two books. After that, I don't know. I mean, will that be the end of it? Maybe. Will I keep going? Maybe. I don't know. I've been doing this for a long time and, and as of right now, I have to do two more books. Well, one and a third, maybe. <laughs> Not quite. <a> third. <laughs> uh, I don't know. And, and there, you know, I am. The way I did timeless is, even though it's a Dritz book, um, he's one character in it, and there are a lot of other characters, and they're doing some pretty fun things. And so, I am going down those side roads with the characters uh, a little bit more now than I used to.
0: Yeah, I I like that approach um, to to follow on books um, because there's always when you're reading these fantasy novels, you know, thinking, gosh, there's just so many fantasy series that I've read over the years. But I remember just being particularly um, taken with some of the characters in the Shannara series by Terry Brooks and then um, later on getting to see him occasionally, you know, Like, uh, a lot of the later books told the story of the Lee family, right, instead of the Shannara family. I loved that. It was just, it was such a cool way to to keep me in that world, but give me something new to experience in it. Um, So, yeah, I I like that approach. I I think this is a very cool way to continue this. Um, But, you know... It's clear that you love this character. Um, I keep calling him Drizzt, and you call him Dritzt, So I'm going Some to attempt. Some people call him Drizzt
2: and that's it, no, because I'm Italian from Northeast, and we eat pizza, right? <laughs> yeah, call him whatever you want. Call him Drizzle. I don't. care.
0: <laughs> Great. Now I have to do my Snoop Dogg impression, Drizzle. Um, but you. <laughs> yeah, <ahead>. I'm sorry. <laughs> So you've been writing about him, as you said, for 31 years now. I had 30 in my head, but it's been 31. Um, So obviously you love this character. You've developed him for so long. If you were forced, absolutely forced, to pick a second character from this realm, who would it be? And why do you like writing about them so much?
2: Oh, boy, that's tough. My answer for many years would have been Bruna the Dwarf. After the Companions, it might be Regis the Halfling. Mm-hmm. Wolfgar was supposed to be the main character in the story and got pushed aside by Dritz. Bree has been the kind of the rock the whole time, and of course the bad guys all appeal to me. I can't. <laughs> I, I've got about eight in my head right now, and I could write books about any one of them.
1: <laughs> That's fair enough. You 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 talked about um, the freedom to um, go uh, back in indirectly.
0: Um, <laughs> yeah. Yep. So. Like So in your creative process, which came to you first, Lolth or Dridst? Dridst. Well,
2: it's a really weird story, actually, because when I did the audition, I had sent the book to TSR back in January of 1987. And I got a phone call, and they really liked the book, but they only had room for Forgotten Realms books. And i didn't even know what the realms were because they weren't out yet and there was no internet that anyone was using for advertising or anything mm-hmm. so they asked if we could if i could set the book in the realms but we couldn't because that book started here and went to a future world and the realms has no relation to our world mm-hmm. at least none that are known in the realms so they asked me to audition for the second book and they sent me the only printed thing they had which was the first book which took place on these tiny little islands. I didn't know anything about this vast world next to these islands. So I thought they were doing a Dragonlance type thing where I would use the characters and keep going, but I didn't really want to do that. So I used one of Doug Niles characters just to introduce Wolfgar, Mm -hmm. who's supposed to be the hero of my story. And it came to the point where they said, no, you can't use Doug's characters. We don't want to, you know, we're not going to set the book there. They showed me what the realms were. We had the book all set sorry about that. Let me shut this ringer off. Um, and I got a phone call from Mary Kirchhoff, the editor, and she said, I have to go, after I won the audition, she said, I have to go, I have to go sell this book to our marketing team. And you know, you can't use Dareth. And I said, I don't want to use Dareth. So that's great. She goes, no, but I, he's in the chapter you sent me, the sample chapter, and we need a sidekick for Wolfgar. And, I told her I'd do it in a week, you know, i get back to her next week. And she said, No, I gotta go to this meeting. And I said, All right, I'll go take lunch. I was working full time in finance then. Mm. And she said, You don't understand. I'm outside the door of a meeting that I'm late for <laughs> and I need a sidekick for Wolfgar. And off the top of my head, I, I said a, a dark elf. Actually I said a black elf. They were called black elves back then.
0: Mm-hmm. And I
2: and she there's a long pause and she said, A drow. And I said, Yeah, a drow. And then the wheel started turning and it just came from there. And I just said, Yeah, draw a drow ranger. That'll be cool. And she said, the Drow Ranger, you know, I'm like, yeah. And she said,
0: <laughs> I said,
2: I said, yeah, that's never been done before. And she goes, there's probably a reason for that, Bob. And I said, no, <laughs> work? And we just went back and forth. And finally, she said, OK, since it's a sidekick character, I'll let you get away with it. What's his name? And off the top of my head, I said, Dritz Niv- Dem- the of Damon the house, ninth house of Menzel Barron's And she said, what? And I said, I have no idea. <laughs> and that's how he came to be. He wasn't played in the game or anything. So I I guess I knew about Loth first because I had played the old modules that followed the giant series. Mm -hmm. So I knew about the drow from that. That's really about the only thing they had on Dark Elves was the descent to the depths of the earth and the vault of the drow and queen of the the demon web pits modules that had been done in the early, early days of Dungeons and Dragons. So I I, I guess I knew Loth first, but... Uh, that's where i came up with him was off the top of my head
0: that's an and amazing story for how I, was I was just looking with...
2: for i was just looking for the buddy fantasy uh, the fritz Library i think is probably the best or lieber i don't know how you pronounce that actually but it, probably my biggest one of my biggest influences in writing is the, the fafford and gray mouser books the lankmar books mm-hmm. and i love buddy fantasy and so i needed a buddy for wolfgar that's
1: it's that's phenomenal that that just came off the top of your head at a moment's notice like that. How much of this stuff just lives in your head like that hasn't made it even onto the page yet? It's just swimming around up there, and it's just it just pours out when you start when you sit down to write. Because I know a lot of writers struggle with fantasy because it's this. It, there are no rules sometimes depending on what what they're writing, and they, I think a lot of writers uh, struggle with that freedom. And so how do you deal with all the
2: ideas and all the names and all the relationships? Well, first of all, if you're doing it and you're, th- and you're thinking there are no rules, you're doomed. Yeah. <laughs> because even though you're using magic, you really have to think of it more like technology where there has to be boundaries and you have to show those boundaries to the reader. And that, that, you're asking the reader to suspend disbelief, right? To believe they're dragons, to believe they're elves, to believe in magic. You're asking that of the reader. And the readers are happy to do that but you still have to have a logical boundary that the reader knows you'll stay within, right? Mm-hmm. Because otherwise everything's deus ex machina. Everything is, you know, oh, and at the end when the dragon's about to win, the wizard comes up with a new spell and goes boom and the dragon dies, right? right? And that's right. no fun for anyone. So, but how much of it lives in my head when I when I ever I sign a book contract, I have to send them an outline that they won't send me a check. So I sent them- <laughs> They send me a check and I throw my outline away because I've already started writing the book and now the character's are taking over. Mm -hmm. And I have a general idea of where I'm going. I think of an outline like a telephone pole. And then when you're writing the book, it turns into this great tree with all these branches going all these different directions that you didn't expect. Maybe it grows straight. Maybe it grows to the side, whatever. But I just let the characters take me there. I'm surprised all the time by my books. Best example I can give you is at the end of The Companions, uh, a character comes back. And I didn't know that character was coming back. I thought he absolutely was not coming back, that he was dead and gone, and he had chosen to go into the afterlife instead of coming back because it was a decision that several of them had been given. And they're up in the top of the mountain, and the panther, Dritz's kind of companion panther, puts her ears back and growls. And when I was typing that growl is when I realized why our was growling. It was because the character was back and coming over the rise. I didn't even know. And this is only next to the last page or the last page in the book. And I didn't even know. And that happens to me all the time. And that's what makes it fun for me.
1: That's so interesting because I find—I mean, I've talked to a lot of different authors in a lot of different genres, and I find that there's a divide in in how people write, and that there are people clearly like you, and I think Stephen King is another famous example where they say, "I I just let the characters take me where they want to go, and they just write, and they don't really necessarily know where the story's going to go, how the, how the book's going to end." But yet there are other writers who think that that's just hogwash. They think that, you know, like, no, I, I I, have to outline everything out and I have to know where everyone's going because, you know, the characters don't speak to me. I'm the one writing the words. Um, so I guess what I'm asking is, do you outline or do you really just sit down and, and let
2: the words take you where you need to go? I have a general idea of where I'm going. I have a general idea of where the story is supposed to go. Sometimes it goes there, sometimes it doesn't. And I'm not disagreeing with the other authors. If you talk to 10 different authors about how they write, you'll probably get eight different answers. Sure. Or maybe 10 different answers. I mean, I have a friend who his outlines were 100 pages long. Wow. Yeah. 100 page outline. And I'm like, are you out of your mind? Um, I, I, And some writers need that. But I would argue that they go through the same process in the outlining that I go through in the book. Yeah. If you're getting to that level of detail, you're trying to solve all the problems before you start writing the book. And that's probably better on your nerves because I can tell you when I'm two thirds or three quarters of the way through the book and there's something wrong and I haven't quite figured it out yet and I'm waking up at two in the morning, it can get pretty harrowing at Mm -hmm. times. But I've come to trust myself that I'll find the solution. (laughs) How much editing and rewriting do you do then? Um... Not that much. I, I, you know, unless the editor is a real jerk, yeah. And then I have to. Um, <laughs> not that much. I, 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 what I do is I get about two thirds or three quarters of the way through a book, and then I start the editing process because, and as I'm going through, if certain things have come to me, I will go back to that chapter and under the title of the chapter, I'll just write some notes about rem- remember to add this part of the story here.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: So while I'm writing, I, what I'll do is I'll get up and in the morning I'll edit. A chapter and do the ads I need to make, and then in the afternoon i'll I'll push forward with where I am in the book. and if I do it right, I finish both the edit and the first draft around the same time hmm. So that that kind of makes sure I get the right foreshadowing in the book and if things are changing near the end, I can foreshadow that a little, a little bit more. But again, I think if you talk to ten different writers, yeah. you've got ten different processes in, in action. Have you ever written yourself into a corner? It's fantasy, <laughs> and then
1: the wizard shows up and says a spell, and they're all free.
2: Of course, I have. I think um, I think everybody everybody does that. If you've written enough books, you've written yourself into a few corners. But then, um, and, and that's why you get that's why you wake up at two thirty in the morning. Yeah, with that nervous sweat. Right? Uh, yeah. Yeah. All right. Fair enough. Cut that part. I don't want to admit that publicly. So. <laughs>
1: It's okay. Everybody does, like you said. I mean, especially the the only reason that I ask is because it seems to me, when you're writing without an outline, I mean, you know where you're going, but when you don't necessarily, like if if you're if you're traveling with your characters and they're dictating where the story's going to go, I have to imagine sometimes you end up 50, 100 pages down uh, one of those branches and you realize, ooh, this actually isn't going to work, or this is this is telling an entirely different book.
2: Uh, I think you're giving it too much uh, free-flowing credit there. I mean, I I have an idea of where the story's going. And if that story is going to change structurally or fundamentally, it's because something else has come up that's better. Mm -hmm. So I'll always still know where it's going. It's just going to a different place. It's not completely free-form. I don't think you can do that unless you're James Joyce writing Ulysses or something. Right. (laughs)
0: Well, I have one more question, like specifically about you know the the, the world there. So, so Menzo Baranzin is a matriarchal city, um, and that's kind of rare in in this type of fantasy. Um, most books I read, it's it's patriarchal. So, I, I was curious about your thought process that led you to that structure, um, and do you feel that it really does make your your world, your version of the world, different from a lot of the other ones that are in these these epic fantasy storylines.
2: I have five older sisters. <laughs> Even matriarchal society is nothing new. No, I'm only kidding. Well, um, <laughs> no, I, didn't, I didn't create that. That was actually outlined in those old modules I mentioned. Um, mm. The dark elves were matriarchal society. What I did, when when I sat down to write Homelanding and, and they told me they wanted to know where Dritz came from, tell us about the drought and all i had were those modules and like a one-page entry in one of the new monster books that had come out the fiend folio so i called up uh tsr and i said you know this is what i have what else are you going to send me about and they said that's it that's all there is and i said well what are you telling me and they said we're telling you you have carte blanche to create the drow in, in the forgotten realms and so i was trying to think of what kind of culture from the outside would look just completely evil but it had its own codes that allowed it to survive. Because if it was just, it was just chaotically crazy evil, everybody would just kill everybody, and that's boring. Mm-hmm. So I pulled out my copy of Mario Puzo's *The Godfather*, and I based Menzo Barons on, on the five families of New York to some degree, and the whole structure of that society. I'm an Italian kid from the Northeast. Um, you know, I, I, you hear stories like that. So, that's where I came up with. With that whole piece of it, the, the matriarchal part was already built in.
0: I see. Okay, I I see that now. Like that had never occurred to me, that correlation to those families.
2: That yeah, is very cool. It. it, it huh. I mean, I, I was aware of that whole structure and everything. I grew up in a little Italy section of a town. I mean, in north in the Northeast. So, you know, you're right what you know. I mean, I'm not saying I'm a mob guy. <laughs> I, mean, I didn't know anybody in the mob or anything like that. You know, you hear the stories about it, obviously, if you grew up in an Italian neighborhood. Yeah. In the- <laughs> at, at,
1: at this point, 30-plus years in, um, do you still see this world and in, in, in and these characters, do you still see them as, like a an existing IP? Or, or do you see them as your own characters that you have molded to such an extent that they don't resemble where they started?
2: Oh, it's in the, the Forgotten Realms is a is an existing IP that's fantastic. It's Ed Greenwood's and now Wizards of the, TSR's and when TSR is Wizards of the Coast's IP mm-hmm. and the people working in it, we all share it. We all live in that world the way, you know, if I was writing books about World War II, I would be writing, other people would be writing books about World War II as well. We're sharing that mythos, if you will. Mm -hmm. Um, So The Forgotten Realms, but the characters are mine. They've been mine since the beginning. That was one of the things that made me really want to continue in The Forgotten Realms was the agreement from the very first days that, you know, we're going to let the authors develop their own characters and hold on to them. So, like, I would never write an Elminster book because that's Ed Greenwood's character. Uh, And when Elaine Cunningham was writing Dark Elf books and she was using a couple of my characters, she would call me up and we would talk about them. So she kind of understood what I wanted to do with them in the future. Mm -hmm. Uh, But, yeah, the characters have changed quite dramatically. In fact, one of the things, the joys of Timeless for me is I'm taking a character really from the old realms who suddenly gets dropped into the new realms Mm -hmm. And I'm showing the anachronism that is Zacnafane. It would be like, you know, pulling Archie Bunker out and dropping him into our world. Mm -hmm. And (laughs) no, it's it's to me, it was one of the most important parts of the book because it's real. It's it's the it's the you know. It's a generational clash because the world keeps moving. But he Mm -hmm. didn't because he wasn't there. Now he is. And But the world kept moving. And it's the part of the world he's seeing now is very, very different than that which he had in his life. And that is upsetting and challenging. And it just made the book much more interesting to me to be able to explore that situation through one of the characters. I mean, one of the reasons I write is to make sense of the world. I take my characters, I put them under tremendous pressure, and I try to get answers from them. And so I was able to do that with a character who's kind of an anachronism.
1: Hmm. Did uh, Timeless help you make any sense of the world that we're living in now? Oh, hell no. Oh, yeah, okay. <laughs> <laughs> I just thought there might have been hope for the rest of us. We could you know, champion this book to, to finally understand what the hell is
2: happening. <laughs> uh, lots of luck with that. Uh, <laughs> no, but it, 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 it does remind me. That some of the people with whom I now strongly disagree about a lot of things, people I grew up with, Mm -hmm. um, and you reconnect on Facebook and go, oh, my God, right? Yeah, right. It did remind me that there's a reason for different perspectives, and sometimes you should try to hear what the reason is, rather than just make snap judgments and shut the world down.
1: Yeah. Mm
2: -hmm. And Zach and Fan reminds me of that. And, and and that's how I try to live. It's hard sometimes. Yeah. Yeah. I'm the guy when I'm driving down the highway, if somebody cuts me off, my first instinct would be a middle finger. <laughs> yeah. I don't do it. And I don't run up on the tail and start driving real aggressively screaming at them. I don't have the road rage. And one of the ways I don't have the road rage is I pretend that's my older sister who got a little confused on the highway because she might be lost. Yeah. So I just tell myself those things to keep my blood pressure in line and to not cause accidents on the highway (laughs) and so yeah i I got that from the book again i mean that was that was a zach the is a reminder to me that you can't look at things that happened 20 30 40 years ago necessarily and and the con you have to know the context of the time around those things you can't just take them in isolation and pretend they're happening now and pass judgment in that manner you have to know the context around that situation at that time
1: yeah
2: and i saw that clearly when people were muckraking in the last election in the country when they were pulling things out of 1980 and 1990 against one or the other yeah and and yeah i remember that and but what was the actual context around it? In some instances, it, was, it makes it worse. In other instances, it makes perfectly understandable why certain policies were enacted or certain things happened. And you, you can't lose that context. And, and the beauty of keeping that all in mind is that you see how far we've actually come. It lets you hold on to your optimism a little bit about the world. The world when I was a kid was a very, very different place than it is now and not in a good way. Yeah, in many, many instances. It certainly wasn't better for my sisters, all of whom are brilliant, and several of whom never fulfilled their potential simply because they were told they can't mm-hmm. by way too many people because they were women.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: And so, so in a lot of ways, it's just a better world. Mm-hmm. And you try to hold that in mind when, you, when you're looking back at things that happened. So yeah, yeah this book this book did make me feel a little better about things. Saw them out, hell no. I, <laughs> I I wake up every day and with you know peeking through my fingers over my eye, I open up Twitter just to get a quick view of what the heck happened today that's embarrassing or outrageous or ridiculous or whatever.
0: <laughs> yeah, Twitter is the new TMZ. Um. Well, no, I like it
2: because I follow I follow people and that just gives me an idea of where to look for what's really going on during the day, because I I know I follow the people who are writing the stories Mm -hmm. that I'm either gonna read or not bother with. That's my biggest thing with Twitter is that I get to, in five minutes, know everything that's going on in the world that's got way too much going on all the time.
1: Uh Yeah. It's too easy to fall down the black hole of Twitter, but it is it is enormously helpful for that, exactly what you're saying. Just to, you know, check in in the morning, see what's not blown up or what is blowing up, and, and check out. It's What's unhealthy is when you just sit there all day and just read all the comments or just
2: fall into the Twitter funk. Oh, I don't do that. Yeah. Good for you. I don't do that. I have enough trouble trying to keep up with PMs on Facebook and things <laughs> like that. I do make it a point to answer everybody who writes to me. Yeah. And and that can get, you know, that's two, three hours a day of that. Sure, That's enough social media for me. I'm not a big fan of social media. Yeah, no doubt. <laughs> I need to do and say the things I need to say. And, and it does give you a voice. And I think sometimes you just need to scream. Yeah. Uh, I wanted to take a few minutes to talk
1: about some of the other work that you have away from Forgotten Realms. Um Star Wars is not a sandbox that you've been very much in. You've written a couple books, but I'm really interested in novelizations for some reason of films. And So you wrote Attack of the Clones. Um, yeah. And also on the show, we've had Terry Brooks, Jason Fry, Matt Forbeck, who have all written some version of a Star Wars film novelization. Um, and something that intrigues me is, is, is how you can take – it's an original story but it's not you know you're working from something that everybody anybody who reads that is probably very well versed in the source material so what kind of challenges are there when you're taking a film you know especially a star wars film and trying to adapt it into a different medium
2: well it depends on what they're allowing you to do because for example I got more leeway in Attack of the Clones than Terry Brooks got on Phantom Menace. Right. To add things. Mm -hmm. And then Matt Stover was given way more leeway than either one of us. Mm -hmm. He wrote a a really, possibly one of... I think it's the best novelization I've ever read
1: Mm -hmm.
2: was Matt Stover's. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it was fantastic. Yeah. And so... That's a big part of it. Because if you're not given a lot of leeway, you're pretty much taking the... You're expanding the screenplays, which you're doing, right? Now, I was given enough leeway to go and tell the story of of Shmi and, you know, Luke's... The backstory of Luke's farm, mm-hmm. if you will, the farm on Tatooine. And I had... I remember I had scattered it through the book and they came back all panicked and said, no, you have to put all of this up front. And I said, what do you mean up front? And he said, well, because she's there for months... And I'm like, yeah. And they said, well, the, but the movie takes place over the course of two days or three days, whatever it was. And I'm like, wait a minute. This this entire movie going across the galaxy, assembling a clone army, putting them on ships, coming across the galaxy, <laughs> takes place in two to three days? And they said, yeah. <laughs> like, well, okay, so I had to take all those scenes and kind of front load them in the book because almost all of it had to be over before the book began. Yeah. Huh. Um, other than that, the only other thing in the process that was a hiccup I mean the whole course of writing the book it's much quicker obviously you're working off a screenplay yeah so it's much quicker it's an, it's an easier write but then a harder rewrite because the rewrite happens while they're shooting the movie and making changes. Oh, we changed this scene. So you you, you know you have to kind of go along with that and keep making changes as you go. Mm-hmm. But then for me the 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 shocker was when I stopped by Lucas Film uh, the ranch up in up in uh, Marin Mm-hmm. And they asked me if I want to see the, the book came out before the movie with Attack of the Clowns. It, it came out really a week before the movie, yeah. Oh, I don't remember and, that. Yeah. And I had to get it turned in way before the movie was done shooting and editing because the book came out worldwide, I think two weeks before the movie came out. Huh. And so I went up there for, when I was on the tour and they asked me if I want to see the movie. Well, of course, right? <laughs> so I, I, I had like a, I went in one of the, theaters they have up there or private screening, or whatever. And I watched the attack of the clones and it was going along, it was going along. And then at the end of the movie, I don't know if you remember, but there's this gigantic fight battle scene, this massive clone army war bombs going off everywhere. Gigantic battle scene. Mm-hmm. None of that's in the book because <laughs> it wasn't in the script. Oops. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That was kind of a, and nobody a, bothered to tell you. Well, because by the time they had put it in the movie, the book was already done and being translated. And uh, See, it was it was all just coordination between the two. And, and it was kind of funny because, you know, one of the things I'm known for is battle scenes. Yeah. It's something I love to write. And I remember one of the first fan letters, fan is a funny word in this instance, that I got about Attack of the Clones was, man, you really suck at writing fight scenes. Because <laughs> oh, no. that last fight wasn't in it. How uh, oh well?
1: Oh, I, um, how 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 times change really though.
2: Like novelizations, by the way. With that, I don't feel like a mechanic instead of the driver of the car. Yeah. You know?
1: mm-hmm. yeah.
2: Although I did have a blast working on that because I got to I got to work with George Lucas. I mean, how many people get to say that? Yeah. And it was fun. He was he was wonderful, and and I love the people up at Lucasfilm. So. Yeah. Well, it was they, a positive experience. They must have learned their lesson because I think
1: with the last Jedi the book came out something like 3 months after the film.
2: <laughs> well, the Han Solo book just came out.
1: Yeah, it did. Yeah, it did. So and, yeah, they're 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 working the other way now. I I honestly I don't remember the book coming out that much earlier than the film. That's that's crazy in retrospect to think about that, especially with Star Wars where there was so much secrecy
2: around it even then. Oh, I had to use a computer that had no internet access to write the book yeah it was um top secret absolutely i mean uh-huh. here i am sitting in it was the election day 2000 was the day i got the script i was up at the ranch and i and you know of course i'm thinking hmm <laughs> ebay cayman islands i can they'll never find <laughs> yeah me, right <laughs> <laughs> but no it was uh yeah it was top secret and and they uh-huh. We're very, very, very serious about the secrecy around it.
1: Yeah, but the book did come out before the movie. That's nuts. That's nuts. It's only a week or two. Yeah, weeks. but still, I mean, today, like you, there's nothing. There's not even reviews that go up a week before a Star Wars movie now. I don't know what to tell you. No, I'm not looking for answers. I'm just saying <laughs> I think forget, it's a little it's bit not
2: company now too. It's Disney. Yeah, that's you're true. talking about a company that can create instant marketing. Yeah. <laughs> Yep, yep,
1: yep. Um, your other your other journey into Star Wars was uh, you, you did something not too nice there to Chewie. Um, yep. <laughs> and I, from what I understand,
2: though, that wasn't even your decision, right? Nope. They wanted to kill the Wookiee, so they hired the Italian. It's so <laughs> Um You did say, write what you know. Yeah, write what you know. <laughs> I became Guido the Killer Pimp or something. <laughs> yeah. For, exactly. What movie is that line from? Yeah. Oh, God. <laughs> I should know this. I don't know.
0: I do not know. I'll just fess Your up. this?
2: Uh, Risky business. They're getting chased down the street. Yeah. Oh, it's
0: been so long. Oh, Let's I'm giving my it. age away.
2: <laughs> watch it again. It holds up. Um, but no, it, it wasn't my idea. In fact, they didn't even tell me I had to do that when I agreed to do the book. I had written the outline. Um, they told me. They told me about the new enemy that was coming into the galaxy. They wanted a Pyrrhic victory. We. Discussed about how maybe I could do certain things with the enemy that didn't make sense to me at the beginning so that I could kind of fix it. So it made sense to me. We agreed on things like that. And then I came up with the story. I submitted the outline. I'd already signed up for the book. I only had a couple of months to write it. And I was on the phone with Lucasfilm and Del Rey. Uh, Shelley Shapiro, my editor over at Del Rey and Sue Rastoni of Lucasfilm. And, and Sue says, "Bob, this book, this is, outline is fantastic. This is exactly what we wanted, but didn't anyone tell you? <laughs> I said, tell me what." he said, you have to tell Chewbacca. And I said, nothing I'm going to repeat here because it's public. <laughs> Suffice it to say, it was two words and the second one was you. <laughs> and, and I wanted to, I, I was like, who do I send the check to? Yeah. Um, you know, I'll return the check, and and no, 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 no. We've discussed this, and and they finally convinced me they were doing it for the right reasons, so I agreed to do it. And it's possibly the only thing I've ever written that I regret. Really? Yeah, I, we shouldn't have done it. Mm. We shouldn't have. When a 45-year-old guy or a 42-year-old guy comes up to me years later and starts talking about, starts crying about how he used to sleep with his Chewbacca doll <laughs> when he was a kid. Yeah. You shouldn't, do that. you shouldn't do that to people unless you have. Yeah. Um, I, I, I I do regret doing that. Mm. It's, it, However, I made friends with Peter Mayhew, so that was a positive. George, <laughs> George, I think he felt bad because of all the grief I was taking, so he asked me to do Attack of the Clones, and that was a big positive. So, you know, life's a journey.
1: Life is a journey. You know, the only thing I got to say is it, at least it didn't happen on screen and we all had to watch it.
0: Oh, God. Yeah, no. I don't think I could handle. I could not handle that. Not Chewie. No. no. he yeah. uh- <laughs> It was bad enough watching Solo. You know, I was just and- say, I was just about to
2: say. Did uh, Did you have you watched the last couple of movies?
0: <laughs> um, so yeah, I yeah, but- had a. I managed to avoid spoilers for that for the Han Solo scene and. Um, and I still don't know how, because I never get to see movies when they first come out. Um, and my son went with me. And he'd already seen it. He went with his his dad, like, two weeks before. And I was going, he's like, oh, I'd, I'd love to see it again. So he goes with me. And it was the sweetest thing. I, like, almost flipped out. Like, it was audible. I was like, what the hell? Mm. Right in the theater. And I never do that. And I started crying. And I had no idea I would have that sort of a response. Um, but this, I can this was only the imagine solo? it would... Yes. Yeah. And it would have been. Wait,
2: wait, wait. Wait, a minute, wait a minute. Don't ruin this for me. I
0: haven't <laughs>
2: seen Solo yet. You what? No, not, no, no, not,
0: not Solo. No, not Solo. The Han Solo scene. The Han- oh,
2: oh, oh, oh. The Han Solo
1: scene of The Force Awakens. Yes. Yeah,
0: okay. I've not I seen Solo either. Told me something else
2: bad was about to happen. No. Oh
1: no, there, there. I'm not gonna spoil it. There is a surprising scene toward the end of Solo, but I was, I was, because it's not cry worthy. Is is uh, the only my was my confusion. No. Okay, you're yeah. talking about the Force Awakens. Yes, yeah.
0: that was cry worthy, okay. and yeah, well, yeah. My, my poor yeah, son cool. <laughs> had to console me <laughs> in the theater.
2: Well, oh, just... it's They didn't find the body, right? Yeah, that's true.
0: Huh? <laughs> ah. Ah, oh, but
1: come on. I mean, Harrison Ford has been saying he wanted Han Solo to die since 1983.
2: It wasn't like it was a surprise. It was
0: <laughs> it was So,
2: so here's a question. What would have happened if Burt Reynolds had taken It would have been entirely different, right? I mean, of what was it? Indiana Jones? Burt no, Reynolds? it was Han Solo. Was it it was Han, Han Solo. Solo. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. What would have happened? I don't know. I mean, he was hairier than Chewy, but he
1: really was. I mean, we we would have probably had a had like a hair off scene, you know, like where they like they 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 compare and compete, but compare. I, I think yeah. I mean, so the way Harrison Ford played it, you know, females can correct me, but I mean, I think he had like an understated sexiness in the original trilogy. Like, obviously, women were attracted to him, but he was never played up for his sex appeal. I feel like Burt Reynolds would have been.
2: I think yeah. you're right. I think you're right. Um, of course, Harrison Ford came to prominence in my favorite movie of all time, which is another George Lucas movie called American Graffiti. American Graffiti. Of course, I I just watched it the I watched it on a plane, flying yeah. out to California a couple of weeks ago. Yeah. Talk about a movie that holds up, man! Oh, oh, I love it. Just love. That's my favorite coming of age movie. Yeah, it's, it's it's actually my favorite movie of all. Period. Really, and Harrison Ford's fantastic in it. Yeah, but so was. about ten other people. Everybody in that so. movie, I know, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Um,
1: all right, let's try to write this ship here, Sam. Let's get back on track. Yep. <laughs>
0: okay. <laughs> well, I, I something I did not realize, in full confession, I've not read everything you've written. I've read a lot, but, you know, I've not read everything, but I did not realize this until recently that you wrote a whole series based on EverQuest, which I was did. I'm sorry, what was that?
2: I edited for you books.
0: edited it. Okay, that might be why I was so confused when I came across that that um, that uh, factoid, I guess I'll call it since it's not really a fact. But see, that was my first MMO game that I ever played way back in the day. Fantastic. So how did how did you get like wrapped into that? Like how did you get wrapped into even editing that? Did you have a history with I the game?
2: Books. I want okay. I, yes, I did. I, I, I love the game. I played I in fact, I just quit again because I play in bursts. I've, I've been playing something called Project 1999, which is classic EverQuest through the first two expansions.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: Uh, I, I like MMOs when they begin, and then as they get too mature and the numbers get kind of out of control, I tend to just drift away from them. Mm-hmm. Um, but I loved EverQuest. and when The first thing I thought when I started playing EverQuest, because i had never seen anything like it, was I could write a million books in this world. <laughs> and... Yeah so I contacted Sony and I I developed a relationship with them and I, I convinced them to do a book line and they did four books, but they wouldn't do what they needed to do to make those books successful. And that would have been advertising them on the login screen to the game. And they wouldn't do that. For some reason, there was this push me pull me going on Mm -hmm. and it broke my heart because, uh, Scott C. Anson did one of the books, Elaine Cunningham did one of the books. Um, they were good, they were, they, we did four books and they were good. They were fun, they were EverQuest. I mean, Ooh. Scott got to kill Fippy Darkpaw. <laughs> <laughs> um, and the only thing I wrote for them is in the first book I wrote this for, forward called My First Steps on Norath. And it mm-hmm. describes my first time playing EverQuest and it was an absolute riot, what happened. So I told the story of of trying to get from Hallis to Freeport with my barbarian, chasing two of my higher level friends, and just weird things happened. It was it was a fun time. This was in the days of dial up, where a phone call would disconnect you, right? <laughs> yeah,
0: yeah. It uh, was. That,
2: I love that world. I absolutely adore it.
0: Yeah, it's a, It was very formative in my my future of of playing games, which I still do quite a bit of um yeah and and it just yeah you're bringing back so many memories the whole train to zone the just trying to strip in your character naked to run across the zone so you wouldn't you know ruin your <laughs> you ruin your gear
2: well if you died you wouldn't have to go find your body right
0: exactly exactly like <laughs> right,
2: stuff in the bank run across the zone keep doing it <laughs> till you get there then you take your stuff out of the bank and leave the bodies yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, it was a fun game. I mean, I, I, like I said, I, I just got done playing again. I, 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 It's a great escape. Great place to hide from the world for a little while.
1: <laughs> yes, do, it is. Do you read a lot of fantasy by contemporary authors?
2: Not as much as I should. And I'm, I'm sad to admit that. But when I'm writing, it's hard for me to read yeah. fantasy because it, it interferes. And I, I, lately, I've been writing all the time. Yeah. So I've been reading. I, I, the one book I almost done is um, Billy Lynn's Long Halftime Walk. Um, I'm certainly going to read Woodwood's book very soon. Um, you know, I read more, more like uh, nonfiction mm-hmm. and and or contemporary fiction than I read fantasy now because I'm writing all the time. Yeah. And it, it I have a I have several I want to read. Like, I, I want to read um, the – I certainly want to read the N.K. Jameson books, right? Oh, yeah. I mean, three Hugos in a row. There's something there. There's definitely something I wanna, there. I want to read those. That's not a fluke. <laughs> I want to read um, – no, that's not a fluke. Once isn't a fluke, but three times really isn't a fluke. Yeah. Um, I want to read some more of Scalzi's work because I love I love some of his stuff. And um, a couple of guys that I've met recently, Mike Cole and Sam Sykes, I'd like to yeah. see. I want to read The Armored Saint. So, and Troy Denning's new Halo book, I really want to read because I hear it's fantastic. So there's there's a lot of things I want to read. The only one I've read recently, and I'm still reading it, is um, Street Freaks by Terry Brooks. It's a self-published book that Terry Brooks just did. Terry's a dear friend of mine, and I was at his house. I went out there for a, um, he does a literary convention out there every year in Oregon. And so my wife and I went out to hang with the with the Brookses for a week, and um gave me a copy of the uh, the advanced reading copy of Street Freaks, and I, I just started it. And it's something very different for Terry, and I want to see what he can do with it. So, yes, yeah. Nice. nice. What, what would you be doing if you weren't a writer? I would be a retired baseball player. Who, uh, <laughs> what would I be doing if I wasn't a writer? I'd probably be working as a, as a either a manager or an accountant, or really? a financial analyst somewhere. I was in finance.
0: Uh, yeah, finance numbers. rules.
2: <laughs> I love numbers. I'm really good with numbers. I started college as a math computer science major. Uh, I would probably be doing something like that. Hmm. Thank God. I- Thank, <laughs> Thank God, God you're not, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um,
0: hey, now, don't knock it. It <laughs> no. pays my bills.
2: <laughs> All right. Sorry, Sam. Well, that's, that's what it is. I mean, for me, the the best part of being becoming a writer was that I got to watch my kids grow up. I get to yeah. I got to coach their teams. I get to go to all their games, all this, all their events, because I make my own hours, right? Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, of course, I still miss a lot when I was on the road. We used to do those gigantic book tours and stuff. But, uh, yeah, I, I'd probably be working as in hopefully in management. That was that's where I was moving, in in the computer industry. Mm-hmm. But I don't know because. See, I say that's what I would be doing, but it's really a young person's industry. So I would probably be one of those unemployed, almost 60-year-olds. Yeah, like you just got pushed out. was what's next, right? Yeah. You'd be, you'd be working can't... on your first novel right about now. <laughs> uh, no, I probably would have have about 20 on the shelves. You know, <laughs> I think how I make sense of the world. So I would be writing. But if I wasn't publishing, I'd be paying the bills. However, and and I mean, look, you're talking to someone who worked as a bouncer, yeah. to pay his way through college, worked in a in a print shop as a gopher, worked in a plastics factory, which is about the dirtiest job you can imagine, worked in the post office, worked in finance, worked in the Sarin Steel plant. Um, the, the work is work. You do what you need to do to pay the bills. There's no that's shame right. in that. No, that's right. Um, mm-hmm. And I, and I don't. There's no judgment. And you know, for me, the, the other thing maybe I would be as a teacher, because the, another thing that would be incredibly rewarding to me would have been as a teacher.
1: Yeah.
2: Um. I don't know. If I had it to do over again, knowing what I know now, and writing wasn't an option, I don't know.
1: Yeah.
2: It's tough. I don't know. It's tough. Um. Since you are a writer, though, what is the
1: toughest? Or or most frustrating thing about writing that you just love
2: to do. The most frustrating thing? Yeah,
1: like something that's it's it's like it's incredibly difficult or it's frustrating while you're doing it, but you still for some reason just love to do it. Is there something?
2: Not off the top of my head. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Cause sometimes there are things like that, you know. Sometimes for some people it might be the outlining, like they hate doing it, but they love having done it, you know what I mean?
2: Well, I love having written. <laughs> uh, I, mean, I love having written right that's the oldest saying in the business yeah uh, no for me I, I I think it would be I think it would be I hate that I those moments where I don't know where I'm going and I think I'm in the corner and waking up at 2.30 in the morning and then not getting back to sleep because my brain is trying to find me. That's what it always happens to me is, is early in the morning. My brain is trying to find its way through this this kind of maze I've set up for myself in the book. I hate that. And it stays with me and it follows me to breakfast. It follows me in the shower. It follows me in, when I'm driving down the street. It just stays with me and I hate it and it's frustrating. And, it's, and then I find the solution and I feel like the greatest thing in the world because mm-hmm. I found the solution. You know, yeah, um, so that would probably be it. I wish it was easier, yeah, to find those solutions, but then I guess that's probably why I liked EverQuest, right? Because EverQuest wasn't easy,
0: (laughs) no, it was not. You
2: get a sense of accomplishment when it's not easy, and you get there anyway. That's right. If it were easy, everybody'd be doing it, right? Everybody is doing it.
1: This has been The Great Big Beautiful Podcast. You can find us online at thegbbpodcast.com and on Twitter and Facebook at thegbbpodcast. Thanks again for subscribing and listening. We really do appreciate it. And until next week, I am Jamie Green, and you can find me at The RoarBots. Take care.